Psalm 1611 says, in his presence is the fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the very presence of God dwells within us, not in this building, not in this room. He dwells in our hearts, which means that the fullness of joy resides within every single person who belongs to Jesus Christ. And so if you are here today with the joy of the Lord in your heart, grateful for all that the Lord has done for you, would you just maybe let us know by saying amen and by lifting our voices and praise again to the Lord for his goodness to us. He's so good to us. So fathers, we come to your word now. We ask that you would use it to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. That you would help us to see once again today your glory through what you have preserved for us here. That we would once again be reminded of the good news of this gospel announcement that you have defeated sin through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, and that you offer as a free gift salvation for all who would turn from their sins and call on the name of your son, Jesus, in faith. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us. And so help us today, Father, as we just sang, to ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Help the gospel message to fall fresh on our hearts again today, Lord. Don't allow us to be like those who see without really seeing. Don't allow us to be those who hear it without really hearing it. Lord, let your word permeate penetrate our hearts today and our souls. Make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. So Father, today, will you speak to us a word that will edify your church and glorify your name? Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. May it bear fruit in our lives today. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and be seated. And as you find your seats, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Uh, John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26 is where we'll be together this morning. If you're our guest, my name's Taylor, and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. And our church family has been walking through John chapter 17 for a few weeks now. And we're putting a bow on that together this morning as we study the high priestly prayer of Jesus. John 17, we'll be looking together, verses 20 through 26. If you have grown up in the church or you spend any time in the church, it's very likely that you have used the term or heard the term prayer warrior. Uh, but if you're not familiar with that term, a prayer warrior is really just someone who understands the reality of the spiritual warfare that surrounds us, the reality of the spiritual battle that we're in. And there's someone that we believe it will be dependable if we call on their name to pray for us or to pray for a specific situation. And so if we're going through something difficult personally, or if we're aware of a serious prayer concern, what we say we're going to do is we're going to call on our prayer warriors. You know, when I think of prayer warriors in my own life, that there's several that I could point to right here in our congregation. On our staff, two of our associate pastors, Dave Eatman and Dustin Nally, are both prayer warriors. Anytime I've shared just a concern with them or something that's burdening me, they're not the type of people that say, hey, bro, I'll pray for you. Uh, they're the ones that will stop everything they're doing, and they'll pray for me in that moment. Uh, from our elder team, I think of Ron Logan. 
Ron and I are both very early morning people, and so Ron and I have a lot of text interchanges, sometimes before 4 or 5 a.m., and he's sharing ways that he's praying for me. It's not, it's not uncommon for me to wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and have a book-linked text from Ron that was sent at about 2.30, because he has to be at work really early, about what he was praying for me that morning. And so when I think of a prayer warrior, I think of Ron Logan. In, uh, across our congregation, I think of Gene Lowry, I think of Jim Hand, who lead our prayer team. They're faithful in praying for me every single week. They're faithful in praying for you as our congregation, as, as prayer requests are, are shared and making sure that those requests are following up with. It's good to have prayer warriors in your life. It's good to have people that you know that you can count on, people that you can call on when the battle heats up. And when we think of prayer warriors, we think of close friends, we think of grandparents, we think of parents, we think of other faithful members in our church. But when you think about the most faithful prayer warrior in your life, do you think about Jesus Christ? As we come to the end of John 17 and the high priestly prayer, we, we spent the last few weeks studying the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in Scripture. He prayed these words the night before he went to the cross. And what we have seen through this prayer is that Jesus prayed for himself. His, his first request was, Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And then for the next two weeks, we saw what Jesus was praying for his disciples. Holy Father, keep them in your name. We saw last week, sanctify them in the truth. But today we turn our attention, not just to what Jesus prayed for himself and for those disciples who were physically present. Today you and I are gonna see what Jesus prayed specifically for us. It was the 19th century Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, who once said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Jesus Christ is the most faithful prayer warrior in your life. And the night before he went to the cross, he was doing battle for you. So what specifically did Jesus pray for us? That's the question we're gonna answer today from John 17. So let's read again verses 20 through 23 as we start our time together here. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Everyone say one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So what did Jesus pray for us? What was Jesus specifically praying for us in verses 20 through 26? Well, we see first in this passage that Jesus prayed for our unity in him. Verse 20, Jesus is clear about who he's praying for here. He's not just praying for his disciples who are physically present. He was praying for all who would believe in him through their word. Church, that's us. That's Jesus praying for us. And this isn't the first time we've seen Jesus pray for unity among his disciples in the high priestly prayer. If you go all the way back to verse 11, where we were a couple of weeks ago, we also see Jesus pray the words, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So I want you to think about this for just a second. This is the night before Jesus is gonna go to the cross, where he's gonna bear the sins of the world on his shoulders, and he is going to take our place in death. He's gonna face the punishment that you and I deserve because of our sins, which is death. Jesus could have prayed for anything in this moment. 
And we do see through John 17, Jesus prays for other things specifically. He prayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name. He prayed that we would be sanctified in truth. But there's only one request that Jesus repeats twice in John 17, and it's the prayer for us to be one. Jesus is serious about the unity of his church. He's serious about the unity of the church, and we see in this passage that he is specific about the type of unity that he desires for his church. We see from verse 20 that our unity is only as strong as our commitment to the word. Look at what Jesus prays in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is a unity around the word of God, which means our unity is only as strong as our commitment to that word. Now, we touched on this briefly a few weeks back, um, that Jesus prayed for his disciples to be one. And this is important. This, this is the most quoted portion of John 17, but unfortunately, it's also the most misquoted portion of John 17. We've seen through this text that Jesus is not praying for a superficial oneness that puts truth to the side for the sake of unity. That's not what he's praying for. And if some Christians today will say that we shouldn't divide over doctrine, and their defense is the belief that Jesus prayed in John 17 for us to be one. But if you look at the full context of John 17, it's abundantly clear Jesus is not praying for some sort of superficial unity. He's praying for unity in the truth. So if you've got your Bible open, let's just work through this from John 17. Let's see some of the specific things that Jesus has prayed in this chapter. Verses eight and nine, Jesus prayed, for I have given them the words you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 11, Jesus prayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 14, he prayed, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Verse 17, we saw last week, he prayed, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And we see it again today in verse 20. He prays for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be one. So what does this say about the unity that Jesus desires for us to have? We've seen through John 17 that our unity is in his name, our unity is in his word, and our unity is in his truth. This is what that means for us today. Church, when we are no longer united under the banner of his name, we've lost unity. If we're no longer united in his word, we've lost unity. If we're no longer united in truth, we've lost unity. Please hear this today because I want us to be prepared for this. You've got to understand that in today's cultural climate, churches like ours, Christians like us, followers of Jesus like us who are trying to stand on the authority of God's word, we're not just gonna face the pushback from the world. Sometimes we're gonna face pushback from other Christians and other churches for doing nothing more than simply believing the Bible and teaching and preaching what it says and living it out. You and I, as those who, who stand on the authority and the sufficiency of God's word, sometimes we're going to be labeled as divisive simply for believing the Bible. And we cannot put that, that truth to the side just in the, the sake of, for the sake of saying that we want to appear united with those who have fallen into falsehood. Now, there's a real-time example of this happening across the Atlantic right now. Uh, with the Church of England. This has sprung up over the last few weeks, and maybe you've seen some of this, but uh, the Church of England, unfortunately, like many Protestant denominations, um, they've now uh, taken the step to depart from the Bible's teachings on marriage and sexuality. 
And the Global South Fellowship of Anglican Churches has now uh, very courageously taken the public action to declare that it no longer recognizes the authority of Canterbury. You can find their entire seven-point statement online, but I want to read the second and third points of this statement because it speaks to the type of unity Jesus calls us to have. We don't pursue unity at the expense of truth, and that's exactly what this statement says. This was their statement, points two and three. It said, as much as the Global South Fellowship Anglican primates also want to keep the unity of the visible church and the fabric of the Anglican communion, our calling to be a holy remnant does not allow us to be in communion with those provinces that have departed from the historic faith and taken the path of false teaching. This breaks our hearts, and we pray for the revisionist provinces to return to the faith once delivered and to us. The holy remnant in Scripture refers to that segment among God's people who remain faithful to God's covenant against wind and tide by trusting and obeying God's word and keeping to God's standard of right and wrong. They do so in spite of sections of the wider community they belong to conforming to the world around them and disobeying the revealed word of God. We praise God for their courage and may we follow their example. Amen. Church, it needs to be said over and over and over again. It is not divisive to hold on to sound doctrine. It is divisive to depart from sound doctrine. It is not those who are holding to the true teachings of the Bible. It's not those who are holding to the authority and the sufficiency of God's word who are guilty of division. It's those who don't hold on to what it says and who wonder and depart from the truth who are guilty of causing fractures in the true church. Our unity is only as strong as our commitment to the word. But more than that, our, our unity is meant to display something that's far greater than ourselves. We see from verses 21 through 23 that our unity is rooted in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus prays to be one. Don't miss this this morning. He prays for us to be one as he and the Father are one. Now, we've read this text two different times this morning, and this is where I think there's really no substitute for just having the Bible open right in front of you, but I, I want you to see, this might wake us up a little bit this morning. Let's see if we can follow what Jesus is praying here in verses 21 through 23. So let's just do this a step at a time. Jesus says that the Father is in him. He says that he is in the Father. He desires for us to be in the Father and the Son, and he says that he is in us and the Father is in him. So let's just take a poll real quick across the room. Show of hands, group participation. Who heard all that? You're like, I'm tracking, no problems whatsoever. Who heard all that? And you're like, I, I could use a nap right about now, like trying to understand. But let's take a step back from this. I think it's, it's a little easier to understand in reverse order what Jesus is praying for. Jesus says that he's in us. And because he's in us, he desires for us to be one with him and the Father because he is in the Father and the Father is in him. Church, please don't miss this this morning. The relational unity that Jesus is inviting us into is the very fellowship of the Trinity. This is what he's inviting us to be a part of. The doctrine of the Trinity tells us there's one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. And yet the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And we don't worship one God or three gods. We worship one God who is three. That, that's, that's what Scripture reveals to us. One God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. And the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are the perfect expression of unity, fellowship, and love. And this is what that means within the Godhead. It means that the Father never gossips about the Son. 
It means the son never slanders the spirit. It means the spirit is never jealous of the father. No member of the Trinity ever speaks ill about the others. There is no bitterness in the Godhead. There is no strife. Motives are never judged. Blame is never assigned. Not one member of the Trinity ever assumes the worst about the other. There's no trust issues among father, son, and spirit. This word Trinity is actually shorthand for the word triunity. God is not three or one. He's three and one. And the Father, Son, and Spirit are perfectly united in all that they do. Here's what that means for us. What that means for us is that when we believe in Jesus Christ, you and I are brought into the safety of that fellowship. When when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're enveloped into a fellowship of love that has existed since before the foundations of the earth for all of eternity. And the unity that's modeled in the Trinity is the unity that Jesus calls us to model together as brothers and sisters in Christ. In Philippians chapter two, the apostle Paul says it like this. He says, do nothing. Everybody say nothing. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's what that means for us. Christian unity is free of selfishness. It's free of conceit. It's not self-interested. We constantly put our wants and our desires and ambitions, we put these things to the side for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the unity of his body. And one of the marks of a healthy church is the willingness of all of its members to check our personal agendas at the door. When I put me to the side, when I put me to the side for the sake of us, for the sake of our fellowship, for the sake of our unity, and we decide collectively that we're about his name and we're about his glory, we're about his kingdom, we're about his plans, we're about his purposes and his mission. When we put ourselves to the side for the sake of him and the unity of his body, that is the church that's gonna display the unity of the Trinity to the watching world. And this is so critically important for us to do because what we see also in verses 21 through 23 is that our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ will impact our effectiveness in evangelism. Listen to what Jesus says in verses 21 through 23. He prays for us to be one. Why? That the world may believe you have sent me. He prays again in verse 23, for us to be perfectly one. Why? So the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Our unity has an impact on our evangelistic efforts for those who are apart from Christ. The day um, before Emily and I got married, I, I went to get my hair cut, and I've cut my hair pretty much the exact same way for about 20 years. It's nothing special. So, you know, this was my, my, my standard was to go into one of those, you know, just kind of sign your name and take a seat, pay six bucks kind of places. And so uh, I go to get my hair cut the day before we get married, and I walk in, I sit down, there's one guy working, he's cutting someone else's hair. He says, Go ahead and sign in, have a seat, I'll be with you in a couple minutes. No problem. So I go, I sit down, but as I'm sitting and I'm waiting, there was another hairstylist who, who came in and, and she goes to the back and I'm assuming maybe clocked in and puts her stuff down and then she comes out and she sees me sitting there and she says, hey, you can come on back. And I'm like, great. So I go and sit in the chair and as I sit down in the chair, uh, the guy that was cutting hair next to her just kind of groans and he goes, I don't like that at all. And she, she's like, what's the problem? He goes, your, your shift doesn't start for 10 more minutes. You're messing with my money right now. And for the next 15 minutes, these two went back and forth arguing over who should be cutting my hair while she was cutting my hair. It's extremely awkward. 
She's like holding weapons in her hand. Like I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with, with this, this, this whole arrangement. So she finishes the haircut. And what, man, I'm out of there fast, right? Like I pay, I'm gone, and, and I'm out of here. And I, I kid you not, the next day, so this is on our wedding day, around noon the next day, I get this call on my phone, like from a number I don't recognize. And so if you're like me, I don't answer it if I don't recognize the number. I'm kicking that to voicemail. And so I kick it over to voicemail. I go listen to it a few minutes later. It was the manager of this location calling me to ask if I could call her back and verify that two hairstylists had gotten into it the day before while I was sitting there, and could I give her the details about what happened? And I'm like, no! That's ridiculous, right? Like, like, not only am I not returning that call, I'm never going there again, right? And man, if we don't want to go to businesses that operate that way, who would want to be a part of a church that operates that way? Jesus is serious about the unity of his church, because our unity has impacts on evangelism. Please don't miss this. Don't miss the words of Jesus here. The world is determining whether or not God loves them based on whether or not you and I can love each other. They're making determinations about God on the basis of how you and I work together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So you ask, what is at stake in our unity? Jesus gives us a clear answer. What's at stake, church, is the believability of the gospel. The credibility of the gospel message is on the line based on how you and I interact with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who are perishing apart from Christ are watching us, and they're making judgments about the love of God based on the ways we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now now listen, here's the reality this morning. Does this mean that we're never going to have conflicts as brothers and sisters in Jesus? Absolutely. Like, have you read the New Testament? Conflict, right? It's not that we're never going to have conflicts. It's not that we're never going to have issues. The reality is when we pull a group of sinners together, sinners are going to sin. We're going to have conflict. We're going to have disagreements, and we're going to have challenges. It's not that we're not going to have these things, but brothers and sisters, when we have them, God calls us to work together with all of our might to preserve the unity of our fellowship, because the world is judging the gospel based on what we do and how we respond. So that means, listen, when we wrong each other, we, just, we need to be quick to apologize. When we've sinned, we need to be quick to confess sin. When we have sinned, we need to be quick to repent of sin, to seek reconciliation with other brothers and sisters in Jesus. We need to be quick to forgive and to extend forgiveness to others when their forgiveness is, is required and is, and is necessary for the relationship to be restored. Because listen, when you and I don't forgive one another, when we're slow to forgive one another, what it's telling the watching world is that God will be slow to forgive them. The credibility of the gospel is being judged by the watching world on the basis of how you and I react together as brothers and sisters in Christ. It was the 17th century Puritan Thomas Manton who once said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Church, our relationships with each other are preaching a gospel. The only question is whether or not our relationships are preaching a gospel that people want to believe. So man, we fight for unity. We fight for unity with one another because we want the watching world to be captured by the same fellowship of perfect love that we have found in Jesus Christ. Jesus closes his prayer, verses 24 through 26, with these words. He prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. That they may be with me where I am, 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So what did Jesus pray for? He prayed for our unity in him. And second, what we see from verses 24 through 26 is that Jesus prayed for our eternity with him. He prays in verse 24. He desires for us to be with him where he is to see his glory. He prays for our unity in him and he prays for our eternity with him. Back in verse 22, Jesus said that he gave the glory that the Father had given to him to his disciples so that they would be one. The glory of God and the fullness of the glory of God is displayed through the person and work of Jesus Christ so that you and I will be one. It's displayed for the sake of our unity as the body of Christ. You could argue that the entire gospel message is encapsulated in just these few verses because there's a past, a present, and a future component as it pertains to our salvation that Jesus prays for in this short section. Here's the past component. Jesus reveals here and shows us that, that those that the Father has, was, has given to him were given before the foundations of the world. He, he shows us that he was loved before the foundations of the world. And so we looked at this extensively a couple weeks ago, but just very briefly here, this speaks once again to God's sovereign work in election. Jesus says he's doing this for those that the Father had given him. Again, election is not fatalism. It doesn't negate human responsibility, but we recognize that we can only give ourselves over to Jesus because the Father first gave us over to Jesus. In the same way that Jesus has been loved since before the foundations of the earth, the Father chose us before the foundations of the earth. That's Ephesians 1.4. The Father loved the Son, and he chose us before the foundations of the earth. That's the past component. But then there's also a present and a future component. For the disciples who heard him praying these words, and for those of us who hear them today, church, every time we open the word of God, we are tasting and experiencing a foretaste of what we will one day fully experience when we see Jesus face to face. You and I, every time we open the word of God, every time we hear the word of God, even as we hear these words of Jesus this morning, it is a foretaste of what we one day will experience when we see Jesus in all of his goodness. What we experience now in part, one day we'll see in full. Um, Last year for spring break, we took our three boys to Universal Studios. And our two youngest in particular, Nolan and Lincoln, they love Jurassic Park, Jurassic World. They're really into dinosaurs. And I mean, they've been in that world for a while and I don't see them exiting that world anytime soon. And so we surprised them a couple days before spring break, told them that we were gonna be going on this trip. And, and once they found out where they were going, they wanted to know all about Universal and especially the Jurassic Park uh, theme that's, that's there. And so we pulled up some YouTube videos and they were like first person videos of different rides. And and we went online and we showed them some pictures of attractions and things that they were going to see. And that is all they wanted to do for 48 hours. It's like, hey, can we watch the video again? Can we see the picture again? And they, they just wanted to keep looking into this. They were so excited that they were going. But as excited as they were about going and as excited as they were about the pictures and the videos, none of it compared to the moment when they got there and they saw the real thing. And multiple times on that trip, Emily and I would just pause and we'd kind of nudge each other and just say, look at their faces. 
It was such a joy as a parent to see the joy that was on their faces and the happiness that they were experiencing by being able to finally see these things face to face. And church, what Jesus is showing us here today is, is that the goodness, his goodness that we see in part, the glimpses of the glory that we see here, as good as they are, as good as they are, they don't even touch the fullness of the glory that one day is to come. Could anybody here as a follower of Jesus just raise your hand and say, he's been good to me? Could anybody say that? Like, he's been good to me. And listen, even as good as he's been, the goodness we experience here doesn't even touch the goodness that's still to come. 2 Corinthians 3, 16, the apostle Paul wrote it like this to the church in Corinth. He said, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Church, this, this is what Jesus was praying for. This is what he was praying for. Remember, one day the veil is going to be totally removed. It has been removed to an extent for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. But right now, what you and I only see in part, one day we're going to see in full. It's no longer going to be first-person videos. It, it's, it's not just going to be eyewitness accounts. It's not just going to be the glimpses. One day we're going to see the full thing face-to-face. We're going to see the glory that's been there since before the foundation of the world. And Jesus goes on in verses 25 to 26 to show us that that glory belongs exclusively to us. This is something that's reserved for those of us who are followers of Jesus. I'm just going to read 25 and 26 again. Jesus prays, Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The night before Jesus suffered the agony of the cross and took our place in death and paid our penalty for sin, when he lifted his eyes to his heavenly father, he did not ask his father for that experience to be easy. The night before he went to the cross, what was Jesus praying for you? What was he praying for me? What he prayed more than anything else was that the love of God would be known in us. He wanted us to know the love that the Father had shown him. That's, that's what he's inviting us into here. He's not praying for comfort or ease for himself. He prayed for our unity in him, and he prayed for our eternity with him. That's what Jesus was praying for us. That's what the prayer warrior was doing for you the night before he went to the cross. So what's our response to all this? I want to give us two challenges as we close out our time together this morning. In light of this text, the first challenge I want to give today is for us to walk in word-centered unity for those who believe. And let's not lose the significance. Let's not lose sight of the significance of that phrase, word-centered. Let it be said again and again and again and again and again. Jesus is not calling us to unity just for the sake of appearance. Jesus is calling us to unity in substance. Jesus prayed for us to be kept in the Father's name. Jesus prayed for us to be kept in the Father's word. Jesus prayed for us to be sanctified in truth. So when we put the word of God to the side in the name of unity, you and I can no longer claim provision from this prayer of Jesus. When we cast truth to the side and we do it in the name of wanting to look one, we have fallen outside of what Jesus prayed for in John 17. 
His name, his truth, and his word are the basis of our unity. And when we depart from these things, we are the ones that are guilty of causing fractures to the body of Christ. So we fight to be united in his word, but more than that, we fight to preserve the unity that we have in his word. If you're a covenant member of our church family, the second paragraph of our church family's membership covenant says this. It says, we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, and we will walk together in love. Now, those words are just a paraphrase of Ephesians 4.3. And so I just want to ask us as a congregation, I want to ask us, I'm not talking about the church at large. I'm talking about Cross Community Church, Beaufort, South Carolina this morning. Are we doing that? Are we working and praying for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Are we making every effort to live at peace with each other so that we can model to the watching world the perfect unity that's displayed in the Trinity? Are we praying for this? Do we actively pray for for our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ and for the unity of our congregation so that we can display the message of the gospel and so that the message of the gospel will seem credible to a world that does not believe in Jesus Christ? Listen, I, I think we just need to be sensitive to this, especially in the season we're at right now. Guys, over the last year, man, our church family's grown significantly. We've baptized dozens. We baptized several just a couple weeks ago, uh, two more today who weren't able to be a part of that. Our, our missions budget has increased. Our outreach efforts have increased. We have renewed our commitment to the sufficiency and the authority of God's word in reaching in recent days and, and proclaiming the full counsel of God's word and of his truth. We're about to move into a, a new mission field, a new facility in a different part of the community. You and I would have to be absolutely crazy to think that Satan doesn't want to blow every bit of that up. We'd have to be nuts to, to not think that he doesn't want to do everything that he can to, to blow us up from the inside out, to cause us to be divided, to, to cause disunity, to disrupt all of these things. We've got to keep our heads on a swivel, understand like we're, we're in a unique season as a church. Remember, there's a target on our backs right now. And the enemy's going to do everything that he can to disrupt and to destroy this. So more than ever, you and I need to renew our commitment to work diligently for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace and to pray actively for these things. So we walk in word-centered unity with those who believe. Second challenge for us as we close this morning is to set your eyes on the glory that will one day be revealed. And for every believer in this room, we can point to evidences of the goodness of God in our lives. I mean, guys, there's so many things I could spend the whole morning just over and over and over again, how the Lord, oftentimes in spite of me, has just been so good to me, has been so faithful to me, even when I've not been faithful to him. And his goodness is just displayed over and over and over again. But here's what absolutely thrills my heart and amazes me. As good as he has been to us in the here and now and the goodness that we experience, that's not even the tip of the iceberg of the goodness that is to come. That doesn't even begin to, to, to scratch the surface of the fullness of the goodness that we're going to experience when we see him face to face. John wrote it like this in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. So yes, this is who we are now. He says, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So please listen to me this morning. Like I know this world gets dark. I I know that it gets ugly. I know there are days you cannot see the light shining through the cracks. When I look at my own life, man, I have seen suffering. 
I have seen pain. I have seen brokenness. I've seen depression. I've I've seen anxiety. I've seen struggle. I've seen loss. I've seen and suffered every single one of these things. But here's what I know to be absolutely true. In spite of all the evil that I have seen here, one day, the day is coming that I'm going to see him. I'm going to see him face to face. Church, the one that we sing to, the one that we pray to, the one that we read about, the one that we study, the one that we cry out to, the day is coming when the shadows are going to give way to light and you and I are going to see him face to face. The fullness of his glory is going to be revealed and we're going to look into the eyes of the very one who saved our souls. So when the days are dark, and they are cruel, and things are ugly, and you are crying out to God, and you feel like maybe he doesn't even hear you, and it all just seems way too hard, and it's all insurmountable, I want you to hang your hat this week on this one simple, glorious truth. Jesus is praying for you. You have a faithful warrior who's praying for you. He prayed for you the night before he went to the cross. He prayed for you long before you were born. He is our mediator sitting at the right hand of the Father who is praying for you now. So whether in the room next door or for the heavens above, know at all times Jesus Christ is praying for you. So fathers, we, we close this time together this morning. We thank you for this precious promise. We thank you for the joy of knowing that your son Jesus intercedes for us. He is our mediator. Father, that we can have direct access to you because of what he's accomplished for us. That we can come boldly into your presence, Lord, that even when we are faithless, he is faithful. So help us to rest in that promise this morning. Help us to rest in that truth today of knowing that you are for us, knowing that you hear us, that even when we cease in our prayers to you, he never ceases in his prayer for us. We thank you for the promise that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our weaknesses. With groanings too deep for words, that when we don't know what to pray, we are still prayed for. We root our confidence in these things today, the goodness of who your son Jesus is for us, Help us to fight to preserve the unity that you've called us to embody here so that the watching world would believe that the message of the gospel is real, that it's believable and it's credible because of how we love each other. Lord, make us one. Make us one in your word, one in your name, one in your truth, that the world may know and believe in your son, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent.